Hello there, everybody, and welcome to Things We Said Today, our virtual roundtable where we talk about uh, all matters concerning the Beatles, uh, their history, their present, their future, whatever whatever we can come up with. Uh, I'm Al Sussman from uh, Beatle Fan Magazine, and I'm here with my three co-hosts. First of all, the, uh, the, the host of the syndicated uh, and rapidly growing Beatles uh, radio show uh, every little thing uh, and that's ken michaels hi ken hi al how you doing good how about you very good. um and our resident uh, musicologist just back from a uh, from a concert yesterday that he uh, that he just reviewed and uh the longtime uh, longtime classical music reviewer for uh, for the new york times and also the author of the beatles from the cavern to the rooftop and the book about, about i want to hold your hand that i'm just blanking out on and the title got that of which something is, got, that got that something, something. How the Beatles want to hold your hand changed everything. Right. And that's Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hey, Al. How are you doing? And hello, everybody. And uh, last but certainly not least, the uh, as Alan calls him, the uh, the world's uh, the world's only remaining full time uh, <laughs> Beatles journalist, uh, and he uh, writes for uh, for Billboard and for Axes AXS dot com, and I think sometimes to still the Hollywood Reporter and uh, various other places, and that's uh, Steve Marinucci. Hey, Steve. Hey, Al. Uh, hello, everyone. And uh, I should mention that two days from now is the anniversary of the death of Davy Jones, of which I have a book. Yes, called... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I got to get that in. Sorry. Mean a Monkey, Davy Jones. There we go. And yeah, uh, that was five. Was that five years ago already? Uh, yes, it was. It'll be wow. five years. Uh, time is just passing by ridiculously fast yeah really a little a little too fast because yeah. that seems like it was the day before yesterday yeah mm. i could say that Any... about a lot of things well this is <laughs> this is very true yeah. <laughs> very true uh, we have uh, we have one uh, discussion topic that we're going to be getting into, but first uh, we have some a uh, little bit of news. But also, as I mentioned, Alan yesterday uh, uh, went to see a concert, which uh, was um, it was the Portland Symphony uh, in uh, doing a um, at least the first half of the concert was a symphonic version of Sgt. Pepper. And the second half was uh, various and sundry orchestral arrangements of Beatles songs. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> is, yeah. that an af is that an afternoon you uh, well, you know, you actually, wish you had back? <laughs> um, I should, to clarify, what, what they did is they had a rock band on stage with them. And so, oh. um, you know, it was meant to be pretty much faithful renditions of the Beatles arrangements of all of these songs, including all of Sgt. Pepper. And as I said in my review, which you can find on my Facebook page, because I put everything up there, uh, probably by the time this runs, you might have to scroll down a bit. I generally, okay, I said in the review that, uh, you know, the, for me, this was sort of going to be a test, because while on one hand, I love Sgt. Pepper and thinks the, think the Beatles are the zenith of Western Civ, 
On the other mm-hmm. hand, I really loathe orchestral pops concerts. I love orchestra concerts. I mean, as, a, as someone who is also a classical music reviewer in real life, um, mm-hmm. that's what I go to. Orchestral pops, to me, just always are, you know, from an orchestra goer's point of view, they're just cheesy. And from a rock lover's point of view, they're always kind of defanged, um, you know, not very good versions a little muzaki and you know you know why bother now mm-hmm. the conductor of this one um jeffrey reed who has an orchestra in uh tennessee i believe has been building a reputation for doing faithful covers of lots of great rock stuff last year he came to portland with the same band and joined the portland symphony for the complete pet sounds and then beach boy songs on the second half of the concert Mm -hmm. um and i i didn't get i really wanted to go to that but i wasn't able to because i had to be out of town covering something else for someone else and so i missed that but you know now i don't feel so bad about missing it because what i expected to happen How I expected this concert would finally convince me that maybe symphonic pops concerts are not the dopey, artistically worthless things that I've always thought they were, was that I expected that when he said that they would be doing Sgt. Pepper, that they would be treating Sgt. Pepper the way they would treat a Beethoven symphony. In other words, you play it from start to finish, you play all the notes, you, you you do it as it is. Mm-hmm. What was immediately clear after a little help from my friends was that the conductor was going to stop and turn around and talk to the audience in between just about every song. I mean, he didn't do it. He also left from Good Morning, Good Morning to A Day in the Life Alone. But every single song otherwise, he turned around and talked to the audience. Now, you wouldn't get that in a Beethoven symphony or, you know. Right. And and most of the things he had to say kind of were not worth breaking the spell of Sgt. Pepper, where, you know, everybody listening knows the album. Right? I mean, you know, those songs go from one to the next. And mm-hmm. you expect, you know, when getting better ends, you expect it, it's just they go into each other like symphonic movements. And I mm-hmm. thought, you know, this is going to be great because it's it will be treating Sergeant Pepper with the respect it deserves. But it turned out to be just another dopey orchestral pops concert and treating Sergeant Pepper as just another bunch of Beatles songs, not as a sort of unified whole. Now we can argue whether it really is a unified whole and the concept album and all that stuff. And, you know, we've done that and, and I don't think it really is a concept album necessarily in the way that, you know, Tommy is, but it is in the sense that they, they carefully sequence those songs. They did the British pressing in any case without banding between songs. So clearly mm-hmm. the intention was this is like a show, you know, of the Sgt. Pepper band, you know, and you play it from start to finish and you listen to it. And I thought this is really the way it should be. And it wasn't. And so that was really intensely disappointing. And and so I had to beat him over the head a bit, um, partly <laughs> Well, partly because it's my job and also partly, um, let us say, prophylactically. (laughs) Because 
because <laughs> he is planning to do the same thing with Abbey Road, or at least make an arrangement of all of Abbey Road, which is the mm. other Beatle album that's most likely to survive orchestration. Right. I mean, as you know, on Sgt. Pepper, it's not all orchestrated, and mm-hmm. so stuff that he did is not really on Sgt. Pepper. And in those cases, you know, the the rock band still was out front as the Beatles would have been, but he added some textural filler to give the string players and and the orchestra something to do. But it was, you know, not intrusive and it was tastefully done. With Abbey Road, I mean, especially side two, I mean, that can be incredible. And uh, Mm -hmm. but he but he has to sort of play it and shut up. Or as Frank Zappa, you know, put it in an album title, shut up and play your guitar. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping, you know, that he takes this to heart and, you know, and and also he might be able to rethink his Sgt. Pepper thing, too, because, you know, Jeffrey Reed takes this show around the country. He just happened to come to Portland this weekend, but he plays it with other orchestras all over the place. And what I suggested was, you know, if he had to really had to chat between songs um, and some of which was practical, he wanted to introduce the guys in his bands and who was singing and et cetera for each song. The way to do that is to make the second half of the program the first half, right? So there Mm -hmm. you've got just a bunch of miscellaneous songs and they did a lot. It was mostly post pepper. They did. I am the walrus magical mystery tour, Penny lane for the pre pepper stuff. It was just, you know, the obvious things you would guess they would do yesterday in Eleanor Rigby because Springer, um, you know, and Long and Winding Road they did, and Let It Be, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, the guitarist was not really quite Eric Clapton, but mm-hmm. you know, they did a, a reasonable version. And, um, you know, basically, they should have made that the first half. Then he could introduce the players between songs, because those songs don't have to run together uninterrupted. I'd rather they did. But if he has to chat, has to introduce the band, you know, maybe someday someone will invent something like, oh, I don't know, program notes that could, you know, give people this info. But if he has to chat, that's the way to do it. Do it on the first half and then Mm -hmm. on the second half, play Sergeant Pepper uninterrupted. So, you know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, unless he just, you know, takes such umbrage at the review that, you know, he's not going to do it. Maybe he'll rethink this presentation as he goes around the country and uh, and does it that way instead. But, you know, no one listens to critics. So this is this is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say, Alan? But, I said no one listens to critics. So, <laughs> you know, we heard from uh, we heard from Denny Sewell a couple of weeks ago what, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what they do with critics. <laughs> so, yeah, this is true. So uh, that was a sorry pepper thing. I, you know, I had hoped it would be much better than it was, mm. um, but alas, you know. Yeah, I mean the con- the concept sounds sounds real good, but the execution obviously was not. Uh, not up to snuff, right. Alan. You you probably have, as I do, several versions of symphonic treatments of of Pepper. Do you? Does any off the top of your? I can't remember. I mean, I don't have my collection right here where I can look at it. But I mean, is there any that you can think of offhand that were that good? 
Uh, no, I mean, I can't think of, I, I've got symphonic collections of various Beatles things, but, um, mm-hmm. I don't think I have a symphonic version of Pepper. You uh-huh. know, there were lots of other covers of Pepper, you know, ranging from Big Daddy to right. you know, mm-hmm. various, various things, you know, even I think Mojo probably has put together a compilation of various artists covering oh, sure. all the songs. You know, I mean, someone said on, on my, in the discussion after the review in my Facebook page that, the Beatles sound itself was so crucial to why we like the stuff that that's why you never hear covers of Sergeant Pepper. Well, you know, he never heard covers of Sergeant Pepper. I've heard covers of Sergeant oh, Pepper. Oh, sure. You mm-hmm. know, and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously everyone probably prefers the Beatles original versions of all their stuff, but there are some really good covers of everything out there. And, uh, sure. sure. Yeah. Yep. But, but symphonics yeah. of generally, I mean, I just, I'm not, I'm not crazy about symphonic versions of Beatles things. I mean, I've got all right. the Holly Ridge strings things and George Martin's orchestra and all that. And, you know, they're entertaining and, you know, yeah, but those are, those are guilty pleasures of mine. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I can't imagine actually a, apart from if I had some work related reason to put them on, I can't imagine actually putting them on, but, um, yeah, yeah. You know, there, there. I, I just was looking up on Amazon just to see what I could find, and there is one that they show, and I, and actually, I think it's changed a little bit since it originally came out. It's called Orchestral Sgt. Pepper by the Royal Academy of Music with mm. David Palmer. But mm. David Palmer has since become a woman. Yeah, D. Uh, Palmer. Uh, right, and D. but anyway, but but that album, as I recall, is very good. Is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll have to look into it. Yeah, it's on Amazon for like three bucks used. This was supposed to be not a you know recreation, as in like they you know they weren't wearing Sergeant Pepper costumes or they were doing it sure. as as if it was you know a great piece of musical literature, which it is, except that. They didn't do it as if it was a great piece of musical literature as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a pity. I mean, the, the the arrangements, though, were were generally speaking faithful. And also some of the stuff that he had to say in between was, you know, was just wrong. It was like, you know, turned around and said, uh, you know, George Martin did all their arrangements. All right. You, know, you mentioned that. Yeah. Really true. I mean, two of the songs he played had orchestral arrangements by other than George Martin. She's Leaving Home was arranged by Mike Leander because mm-hmm. George Martin was busy and Paul didn't want to wait. That's right. And uh, Long and Winding Road was arranged by Richard Hewson, mm-hmm. which is really an interesting thing because, you know, of, of, of all the Beatles recordings, the one that Paul has been the most apoplectic about has been yes. what Phil Spector did to Long and Winding Road. Mm-hmm. And that was Richard Hewson. And yet, right. like two years later, Paul hired none other than Richard, Richard Hewson, Hewson to do the thrilling today. Right. <laughs> so, so I yeah. guess he's, you know, more forgiving than people sometimes give him credit for. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is true. Very we, true. Could, we could get into a whole discussion about things like Hollywood strings, which really are, are not really classical. I mean, that's. No, really, they're, right. they're easy, you know, what was easy M-O-R. listening. Yeah. Right. Back back in in the sixties, you know, definitely the kind of stuff that was played on what they called beautiful music radio stations. Right there, I mean, there uh, are some good classical renditions of the Beatles. That one uh, uh, was it, Akira Takahashi, Alan? Is that the one? 
uh, Aki Takahashi. Well, those were, yeah, what, what, I mean, what she did was she commissioned composers to do their takes on Beatles songs. And so they were all a little bit avant-garde and weird too, you know, I mean, John, that's naturally good. Yeah. Great CD. Yeah, and she did like four volumes of it, and and she's a great new music pianist. So yeah, that was a great project. And also, I, I think I've mentioned in the past too, uh, one of the very earliest things, Joshua Rifkin's Baroque Beatles book, uh, came oh, out in, in yeah 1966, yeah. Mm-hmm. and basically yep. treated the Beatles things. Uh, he orchestrated them as if they were Handel and Bach. Yep. And you know, and did such a persuasive job that. You know, I used to have friends over, friends of mine from the classical world over for dinner and put that album on. (laughs) And it would take people a really long time to realize that there was something a little unusual. What what is that melody? (laughs) That melody sounds familiar. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, Interesting. Now, in the same vein, um, this uh, this past weekend was the seventy uh, fourth anniversary of the the birth of George Harrison, mm. and um, uh, Kenneth mentioned that there was a, uh, a George Harrison tribute concert that he was interested in talking about. Yeah, I wish I could have gone to this one. It actually took place on Long Island. It was called the Concert for Bangladesh Revisited. And mm-hmm. this is a show that gets put, has been put on for the last several years. There's a band called Wondrous Stories, who takes their name from the Yes song. And um, they not only have covered Yes, and do they're a Yes tribute band, but they've also done a lot of Beatles. And Kenny Forgione is uh, the main member of the group. And um, he puts this thing together, and they had it over the weekend. And not only did they play the songs from the concert for Bangladesh and other George Harrison songs, Solo and Beatles. But they had special guests on stage, which included Danny Lane, mm-hmm. Steve Holly, ah. uh, Marshall Crenshaw, wow, um, and John Murjavi was there playing mm-hmm. with them. He really gets around. <laughs> yeah, he certainly that. does. <laughs> I mean, he's he's in Liverpool, the house band at the Fest for Beatles fans. He's in the Weaklings, right. and he was yep. also in this band. And also a really good friend of mine who used to be my co-host on the radio when I first started on college radio, Ed Ryan, who does mm-hmm. a lot of performing in the New York area and Long Island. And he got to go on stage with these people, which was the thrill of a lifetime. I mean, I, I've known Ed since I started doing my Beatles show in 1982. And he was very familiar with all the solo music. It was a thrill for him. We got to see Denny Lane in concert a few months ago. So we got to meet Denny. He was over the moon over this and here he is on stage now with with denny lane and steve holly mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like my god <laughs> so not only is he uh you know a, a great musician um he's a major fan so mm-hmm. i know i know uh may pang was in the audience for this but um mm-hmm. he puts on this show every single year around george's birthday and so he's going to continue to do this or try to do this and invite special guests uh every year so uh Wish I could have gone, but sounds like a real dynamite show. Yeah, sounds sounds real interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have a couple of a uh, couple of news items. Uh, Ken mentioned the fact that, uh, and possibly some of you may have uh, may have seen this online, that in the the new version of I Me Mine, the new edition of I Me Mine, uh, there's a page in which there are some handwritten lyrics for for a song called Hey Ringo. 
which nobody seems to know anything about. Right, Ken? Yeah, and I've actually seen the lyrics. It's it's not very lengthy, but it sounds mm-hmm. like something that George and Ringo wrote together. Now, I could be wrong about this because the first verse sounds like George is writing his feelings about Ringo, that, you know, he always wants to have him drum for him. And then Ringo, it just seems like the next verse is Ringo responding to George. You know, so I don't know if that's a fact, if it's the two of them writing it together. But I know that this was published last year. So we don't really know the extent of whether or not there ever was a full song for this. But it's Mm -hmm. kind of interesting that that this was even attempted. It sounds like a solo Beatles version of I Got You, Babe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Who knows? You know, you watch Groundhog's Day in February and it gets in your head. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Who knows? Maybe it was written for the Ogneer Rats uh, <laughs> special. Who knows? But, you know, there was a, there was an exhibit in Los Angeles over the weekend. And mm-hmm. one of our listeners actually uh, posted something on Facebook. And he, he posted photos from the exhibit of the handwritten lyrics of George's songs. And mm-hmm. apparently, because somebody wrote to him, one of our listeners wrote to him asking if it was facsimiles or not. And he's saying, and this is Matt Wilsinski, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. He's saying mm-hmm. they're the real deals. Mm-hmm. The it's handwritten possible. lyrics. So There's no way to really tell, you know. Yeah. You know, if you go into Carnegie Hall and you look walk down there the hallway along the side of the first floor, you see all of these manuscripts framed on the wall and they all are weathered in different kinds of coloration and all that stuff but they mm-hmm. are all facsimiles very 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 good facsimiles which they decided to make actually only a few years ago when someone stole a bunch of the real ones and they found the box of them in, in uh, I think um, Riverside Park and really? they recovered them but then they, they decided okay we can't leave these things up the real ones up publicly so they they you know went to painstaking effort to make them look real but you know given that that can be done it's hard to say in an exhibition what's real and what's not at this point yeah and i'm reminded mm-hmm. of the fact that on um some of paul mccartney's remasters he has facsimiles of his handwritten mm-hmm. lyrics and they look like right. he just wrote them i mean right. <laughs> it looks that good yeah yeah yeah, and if you remember the uh, the John Lennon exhibit that uh, that Yoko put on, uh, I'm now forgetting where it was in New York at the um, Rock and Roll Music Hall of that Fame was Museum. It. Yes, yeah. that was it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know whether those, you know, those song lyric sheets were facsimiles of the originals either. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in, in Cleveland, they had a whole floor of it. Sure. Yeah. Of just that, of handwritten lyrics. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe they are. I'm just saying that there's, there, it's, it's hard to know, you know, because for security reasons. Of course. They may not be. Yeah. Hmm. Very, very possible. Very possible. <laughs> so if we don't have any, uh, any further news uh, of any great interest, we can move on to, uh, to our, our, our topic 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is something that uh, that Ken came up with uh, through uh, through one of his friends. Yeah, his name is Michael Grassafoli. He lives in New Jersey, and he's a regular listener of this show. Mm-hmm. He's going to be freaking out once he hears me even mention his name here. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and the fact that we're using his idea. But he came up with this question for me of what... He wanted us to talk about what we think all four of the Beatles would be best known for for their solo careers in the world, how the world would look at each of the four of them. If they, if we could pick one thing from each of the four Beatles for what they would be known for from their solo careers, it could be a song, it could be an album, it could be an event, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. It could be an overview, if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What would it be? So I thought, okay. um, you know, that'd be... Because of the fact that it was really difficult for me to come up with, with something for each of the four, because they've given us so much... I thought sure. it would be a really good uh, question for us to tackle. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting topic. Mm. So what we're going to do is we're going to take each beetle and go kind of around the, uh, as I call it, the virtual. Around the horn. Uh, yeah, <laughs> around the horn, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think we'll start with, uh, we'll start with John, and I think I'll start. Uh, because I think maybe I'm taking a slightly different tack in that um, I'm using actually, in, in the case of each, each beetle, a word to hmm. describe you know okay. how the how the world may look on uh, on their 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 post Beatles career. And in John's case, the word would be activism because after all, um, you know, from the very beginning, of you know his of his solo of his you know, of his solo career uh even before actually the uh, the breakup of the beatles he recorded uh, he wrote and recorded give peace a chance which uh, within just a couple of months after uh, it was released had become a uh, you know a major anthem for uh, for the peace movement mm. and and he continued to show uh, he con- continued to be in- deeply involved with social activism for much of the the, the first half of the uh, of the seventies, particularly in, um, in well, at least in England in in nineteen seventy and seventy one, really more specifically seventy one, and uh, and then of course in nineteen seventy two when he. Uh, <laughs> frankly got involved with uh with jerry rubin and abby hoffman and and that uh, group of publicity hungry radical chic people but still his his inclinations as a as a, a you know as he called himself a peacenik mm-hmm. you know were very much very much to the fore obviously songs like like power to the people it's so hard i don't want to be a soldier uh, give me some truth, uh, and any of course the in, virtually the entire album of uh, sometime in New York City, whatever one may think of that. Um, <laughs> I you know, love his, it. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. It, okay. You know, it it has its it has its good points. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think his I think John's activism 
is um, uh, is is what I think the world probably remembers about him, maybe more than anything else. Uh, you know, even to the point in some of the interviews that um, that he did in uh, in in the fall of 1980, uh, while he kind of poo-pooed that period there in 72, he still you could tell was still definitely he had you know very definite views mm-hmm. about the about the world and about the uh the you know the the political spectrum in fact people unfortunately people keep speculating with you know absolutely you know nothing to base it on uh on you know where a john lennon would be today politically which is, you know, absolutely impossible to speculate on because you're talking about, for one thing, 36 and a half years later, and and also a man who was so chameleon-like and so multi-layered and could turn on a dime as far as his his thinking. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's just impossible to speculate on what what John Lennon, where John Lennon's politics would be today. But anyway, uh, I, I think activism is what the uh, is what the world would be would be would remember him most for, in a nutshell. Okay. And uh, Ken, why don't we uh, why don't we uh, get your get your take? Boy, after what you just said, Al, I'm I'm thinking we got to make a show out of that. Oh, <laughs> uh, actually, I think we did. <laughs> well, maybe more in depth just on John. But anyway, as much as I would like for the world to know all of his solo music, I think he's going to best be known for the song Imagine. Mm-hmm. Mainly because of the fact that it's not just a classic, but so many people have covered it. It's used in commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Yoko is always pushing the song. So it's always mm-hmm. used for, for campaigns of some kind, whether it's Amnesty whatever everybody knows the song imagine i would love for everyone to know the rest of his catalog but that's the one that he's best known for i think if i was to pick a signature song from him while i love so many other songs and some songs more than imagine i just think everybody knows imagine and it's always going to be covered and it's always going to be used for some purpose in the future more so probably than any other john lennon solo song so Mm -hmm. um you know, like I said, I think that he had, uh, while it was a very short career, uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. his, songs, his songs are extremely powerful. Most of them are for me. But Imagine mm-hmm. is the one that resonates with most people. People, even people who are familiar with this whole catalog, love the song. The people who are not as familiar, everybody knows that song. So um, sure. I think I'd have to pick that one song from them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's uh, it's, uh, it's very valid. Alan? <laughs> yeah, th- this is this is a really hard assignment. <laughs> um, <laughs> See what I mean? Really? Yeah. I kind of, I you know, I, and I kind of agree with both of you <laughs> so far, but um, I, th- I was thinking more along the terms of what Al said, you know, the activism, the, the fact, you know, people, I think, will remember, you know, keeping in mind we're so we're talking about what the world will remember, not what we individually think. But I, I think people will remember him as a symbol of um, a sort of rock star activism um, and uh, peacenicking. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, because that that was a really crucial part of his career and probably probably the thing that, uh, you know, not only people knew most of the time, but, you know, that gets brought up most often. I mean, the the U.S. versus John Lennon film that came exactly. out not yep. so long ago, I mean, was mm-hmm. well after he died. And mm-hmm. probably a lot of people who saw it didn't really know that much about other aspects of his career, mm. you know, and, and, and because of that, you know, because of things like the involvement with, you know, immigration and all that, because of Nixon trying to, and his guys trying to throw John out of the country mm-hmm. as a troublemaker, you know, that actually, it, it ended up sort of taking over a whole lot of his life. Exactly. Um, you know, and I think also musically, it, it sort of accounts for some of the best and worst of, 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 of his stuff from the period too. I mean, give peace a chance while not, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, the most brilliant musical piece he ever did, uh, mm-hmm. nevertheless caught everybody's imagination immediately. And as you said, it became an anthem and, right. uh, you know, I was funny. I was talking to this Russian pianist, you know, who sort of you know, <laughs> came from came from Russia, moved to New York, and you know, took a very Russian point of view about government control and all that stuff. And he said, you know, you guys really don't think that you ended the war in Vietnam, do you? And I said, you know, you have to understand, everybody was out there singing Give Peace a Chance all Mm. over the country all the time. And yeah, you know, it it did have an effect. I believe it had an effect. I mean, maybe he knows more about how governments work than I do. And, uh, you know, at least at the time, the Russian and American governments weren't, uh, you know, so close. But, uh, you know, I, I, I I think that song had a huge galvanizing effect for people and you know, mm-hmm. and and a lot of his other songs of the time were, you know, very, you know, they caught the spirit of the time. I, I, I wasn't crazy about some time in New York. I thought those songs were sort of half baked. And that was that was the aesthetic he was going for, you know, that it's journalism. We just go into the studio, do it, right. it out next But I kind of think if I think if he had baked it a little longer, those songs would have been better, you know. But yeah, so I'll go with activism. And turn it over to what Steve, I guess. Steve, right? yep, mm. yep. Well, my thinking is kind of along the same lines as you, Al, and you, Alan. Um, but I think I went a little wider. Um, I was thinking that back in the '60s, when John started—well, actually, in the, I should say in the '70s, when John and Yoko started their peace campaigns and you know did the bed-ins and everything like that. Mm-hmm. They were one of the first, if I don't know, I wouldn't, I, well, I wasn't going to say the first, and they, they probably, probably weren't, but they were one of the first to go really public with their political beliefs. And that gets into what Alan said about activism. But I think it was, it's more than that. I think the idea of crusading the way they did, maybe, and maybe I'm on the same wavelength as you guys, um, but, but it really, for me, they really pioneered both him and Yoko pioneered the whole political activism thing. Cause it really wasn't that strong among people before they started doing that. And they, wow. the bed the uh. ins, the bed ins, <laughs> the working for peace, the songs, the songs. I mean, the songs were all, that was all part of it. But the thing is that now 36 years after he's gone, it's still 
going on and Yoko is still carrying on in his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the idea of what John would be doing now, I am pretty certain. I think you can kind of guess what he would have been doing. Not really. But I, 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 mm. I think so. It's, I, I, I really, the theories that he would have been conservative are just malarkey. He would not have been. He would not have been. I could see uh, both points of view here, but I also think that he and Yoko were so much together on every issue. You know, right. however Yoko feels about anything today, I think is pretty much how John would. Exactly. I agree. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and uh, it's just, it's that way. So, but yeah, I think the whole, uh, the political thing, they both pioneered that. Well, I, well I, think, I, I think you were going to, you were going to object to what I said out. What were you? Yeah, gonna say? because I think a, a lot of people that were, uh, that were involved with the civil rights movement in the early sixties well, and, mean, and people, rock, and people rock, who rock. were, who were involved with the, and I'm talking about entertainers. Okay. Who were who were involved with uh, with the with the peace campaign uh, early on? Give me a couple of names that you're thinking of. The Smothers Brothers. You know they <laughs> they lost it. They a, lost the TV show because they uh, because of their uh, of their activism. Yeah. What about Peter Paul and Mary? What about Peter pa- Joan Baez? Dylan. Dylan. Sure. Yeah. And Dylan. Sure. Well, I I. I you know, yeah. Were... Okay, I'll I'll can you know I'll concede that those names did have you know did uh, Dylan especially. I I mean you can't ignore what Dylan did. And you can't shove that to the side. But they they took it I think to a higher level with especially with the bad ends with the well with the events. Yeah, right. That's true. And they... I and I think and I think that's the the that's the point there. Um, that they you know that's what they did. So I think mm-hmm. for that reason. You know, they, I mean, uh, you know, Yoko, like I said, is still doing it today with the wish tree and the whole thing. And, and you know, she's, uh, she's amazing. I'm, I'm, you know, I know we've been talking about doing a Yoko show, but yeah, I mean, that, soon. that's soon, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that's, that, that's amazing. I, I just think she is, you know, and, and uh, yeah. So anyway, there we go. Okay. I should, can I just add that if yeah. we were going to, you know, since we're talking about what the world is going to um, remember them for, um, the the album mentioned most frequently on this show is, of course, Life with the Lions. And, um, <laughs> oh, of course. So, <laughs> I knew you did. <laughs> I had to. I had to. Sure you did. But, you know, to, to um, kind of counter what you guys are, are, are saying here, while I can certainly see why you feel the activism probably is what he might be best known for but i'm thinking of the more casual mainstream person out there that may not know all that history but everybody knows imagine mm-hmm. you know so that's just uh, why think, i you said. know I and actually when you think about it imagine is really even tied in with uh, with yeah, his activism yeah, because the you know it's the whole philosophy of, of you know it's a, it's a you know utopian dream of uh, you know of a song but still it's it's kind of tied in with uh, with his with his activism and his hope for a better a better world right i mm-hmm. think you can i think you can go I mean, there's arguments to be made from both sides, but I think uh, while the song "Imagine" sticks out, and it's the it's the song that that you know will go through the media every time you hear you know that somebody's talking about John. I think history will 
remember the activism more than the than the song, I believe, because of the way, because of the effects. I think that's uh, if we're looking for a historical angle, mm-hmm. I think you have to you have to give it to the uh, to the activism. Okay, in a way, I hope you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You hope I'm right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Write that down. I'm never going to say this again on the show. You know right. <laughs> this is a rarity. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's move on to George Harrison. And um, my one word that I think he's going to be best remembered for is musicality. He was um, he was always kind of the most musical of of the Beatles, and he um, you know in his uh, basically almost as soon as the Beatles had ceased to exist, at least unofficially, he you know was spreading his wings into into different areas and with. You know, musical friends, particularly. After all, his you know his best friend was Eric Clapton, who you know was uh, you know not uh, you know not someone from you know from everything that's known of his reputation was not the uh, not the easiest person to get to know, and yet uh, they were uh, the you know, they were best friends uh, through uh, through an awful lot in the last you know thirty some years of uh, of George's life and as i said in uh, in december of 69 really just after the beatles had more or less ceased to exist with uh, with eric clapton he uh, uh, george went out on tour with delaney and bonnie and then in the sp- in that spring right after paul made the made the breakup Pretty much public knowledge. George headed to uh, headed to New York to uh, uh, to spend time with uh, with Bob Dylan. And throughout the 70s and uh, and 80s, um, he continued to have. He was he had this kind of community of musical friends. You know, he was really he was very much immersed in, in music and he surrounded himself. He was most comfortable with people like, you know, uh, people like Dylan, people like the members of the band, uh, people uh, like Ry Cooter and Billy Preston and, and Jim Keltner and the, obviously his, uh, his, uh, his Indian music uh, guru, if you want to call him that Ravi Shankar. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he was very much immersed in in music, and I think much more so than the other than really the other three, at least until Ringo cleaned himself up and began going out with the the all star band and made it, you know, made it known that he just felt very comfortable. Being with a being with a band and being with a group of musicians like the you know like the current band that he's been with for so long because he just likes these guys and likes them as musicians and likes them as people and that was the case with uh, with George and uh, you know that that coterie of uh, musicians Klaus Vormann you know Jeff Lynne Tom Petty uh, the members of obviously and 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 even 
artists that he had known for you know a goodly a good long time going back to the Beatle days uh, people like Roy Orbison people like Joe Brown you know he continued to have uh, you know an ongoing friendship with with these guys for you know for a very long time so he really really was kind of like a a musician's musician and obviously that was you know, shown in in spades in uh, you know a year after George passed with the uh, with the concert for George and the you know the regard that all of these these great musicians had for George as you know as a person and as a musician. Hmm. So so I think uh, overall that's what he'll he'll be best remembered for is, is musicality. Ken. It's hard to bounce off that one, Al. <laughs> First of all, I, I don't. I kind of had a problem with the way that you introduced uh, that that description of musicality because I do think of Paul and George as being the most eclectic of the, of the Beatles as far as all the different styles of music that they explored. I would say, yeah, I think George was more of a a collaborator with other musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe that would be a better word, but Paul mm-hmm. Paul has worked with a lot of musicians over the years, whether they were all in Wings or some studio people or, you know, all the ones on his different albums. He's worked with a lot of different people. So, mm-hmm. and uh, when you think of musicality, I think of all the different musical styles that Paul has done, which I think is more than just about anybody that I know in music. And George is is pretty close to Paul in that regard, although he's not known for it. But I think you're dealing more with the humanity aspect of George and the fact that he has so many friends who are loyal to him and for good reason. And Mm -hmm. you watch the um, Living in the Material World documentary, you certainly get that vibe from all Mm -hmm. those friends of his, how much they really love that man. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I can see that aspect, the humanity of it, the collaborations, that I would agree with. You know, this is, as, as I said, all four of the Beatles are very tough to narrow down to one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that among so many Beatle fans, they look at All Things Must Pass as, you know, probably the greatest solo Beatle album. And while there's one that I like more than that... Uh, <laughs> You know, I would never argue with anyone who who recognized that as being a masterpiece. But I think that George might be better known for the concert for Bangladesh than anything else. Because it was the first charity concert of its kind. Because of all Mm -hmm. the different musicians that were a part of it. Those were all stellar people. Obviously, Bob Dylan. Ringo was there. uh, Leon Russell, who was really hot at the time. Billy Preston. Members of Badfinger. You know, it was such an incredible concert. And a lot of people point to that as one of the greatest concerts ever. And, um, you know, just the fact that you had all those different people playing their own music, in many cases playing it all together, it was just uh, an incredible moment that a lot of people point to. And whereas I love all of just about everything George has done on his albums, all of his songs, it's, it's tough for me not to pick a song or an album. But this event was so huge. And I think it's only grown in stature through the years. So um, I think if I was to pick one thing of them all, and God, with George, you got so many things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sure. um, I would pick the concert for Bangladesh most of all. Mm-hmm. And if you if you really think about it, actually, 
the the concept for Bangladesh and how it all fell together so quickly uh, actually plays into what I was saying because a lot of those you know the guys that were uh, that were involved with the concert for Bangladesh mm. were again in that coterie of uh, of friends of musical friends that in a you know in a different age you would have said that he you know that George would have had on speed dial. Mm. You know, so, you know, he was able to, you know, contact these these guys at, you know, almost at an instant. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, immediately said, yeah, sure, we'll do it. You know, even even Eric Clapton, who was in the uh, in the throw in the throes of heroin addiction and Dylan, who was in the midst of his uh, what you might call his Howard Hughes period. You know, when he he was he had become a, uh, you know, a recluse and wasn't doing concerts, you know, even he came out. And I think that's uh, Mm -hmm. again, that's a reflection of the the regard that they all had uh, that they all had for George. That's an excellent point right there. That makes it even yeah. more special. Yeah. That was the first exactly. concert since when for Dylan? Uh, the first one since the Isle of Wight in uh, September of 69. Mm-hmm. Well, that just proves that point. Yeah. Know, of how important exactly. George was and how much they thought of him. Exactly. Exactly. Alan, how about you? Well, I think um, Isle of Wight was like August 31st, 69. <laughs> Just a, sorry. Okay. Um, but, um, <laughs> right. But on to George. Um, yeah, you know, actually, I, I cons- it's very funny. I, I considered um, originally I was thinking the consulate for Bangladesh was going to be my choice. But then before the show when we were talking and Ken convinced me that it the topic was about what the world will remember. Um, I thought, okay, I, I have to retool my point of view here. Cause I, I don't know if the world remembered that or not. I mean, I agree with everything Ken said about it. Um, but what I think the world will remember about George, um, in a way I think is the spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because I mean, cause, because that became a really important part of his persona and came out through, an awful lot of his music. I mean, you could say almost all of his music post Beatles, you know, starting with all things must pass. And, uh, and there are aspects of it on brainwashed, you know, and everything in between. Um, obviously he had some other topics he was interested in discussing too, in his songs, but, um, but the, the pervasive spirituality, and it was also something that he talked about in interviews a lot, you know, about how unimportant all of this, you know, physical world was and how it was about something more than that. Um, and then just projecting that idea that, that, you know, you're here for a reason and you should do something to sort of find out what the reason is and pursue it, you know, in a way, like with John's activism, it, it was something a little unusual for pop stars, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, there's like the Amy Grant world where, you know, it's, that kind of thing in a way too, but it's not that kind of, you know, this was a different, mm-hmm. this was a, a different approach and a different philosophy. And so anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's what I think. And, you know, yeah. and, and to respond to that, probably mm-hmm. more importantly is the fact that George was consistent throughout his whole life, mm-hmm. talking about spirituality up to the end, saying mm-hmm. those exact same words that you said, Alan, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So very true. Oh, there you go. Okay, Steve. 
Well, my, I kind of agree with Alan, um, but I think I went a little further. I agree about the spirituality aspect, but my thinking is that the one thing that he did, starting with My Sweet Lord, was make God hip. Um, mm. Because, no, seriously, I think I think that's true because I think there wasn't and i'm trying i'm trying to think back now um you know there there were a few songs um that um that celebrated spirituality and religion you know back then i i unfortunately i didn't get a list of them but there were there were songs i mean um you know, you've got the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hand. Is one that just comes to mind off the top. But my sweet lord, you know, actually, just I mean, laid it out there, and and even you know had. I mean, the the words were were all about that. And it's not just that. It's not just. I mean, give me love, give me peace on earth. What is life? All things must pass. I mean, it was all. His philosophy was all through his music. And even a song like All Those Years Ago, which wasn't really about God, had a little bit of spirituality in it. It, it was just all through his music. So I think, you know, more than anything, that's the overriding thing. I think I seriously did consider making Concert for Bangladesh. And, I, you know, I have no argument on the fact that he was forerunner on making you know uh, rock benefit shows um, mm-hmm. no question no question about that but i think overall even bigger he um the the spirituality thing was what people will remember him for more than anything mm-hmm. very very possible hmm. very 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 possible these are all good answers mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. Next, let's go with. Uh, I'm going to save Paul for last because that's that's going to be the toughest one. So let's let's go with Ringo. And uh, my my word that I would use that I think uh, that I think people will kind of remember Ringo for is resiliency. You know, you're talking about someone who, uh, let's face it, when he was uh, when he was a child. He was, uh, you know, given up for dead uh, a couple of times. He spent a good amount of his time in uh, in hospitals, mm. uh, and yet he uh, uh, survived all that. became uh, became a musician, became a star in Liverpool, and then, of course, became the final piece of the puzzle for for the Beatles. But then, when that came apart. A lot of people were very, including the Beatles, the other three Beatles were concerned about how Ringo would fare in his uh, uh, in his post Beatles career. And at least for the first uh, the first six years, he did spectacularly well. Mm-hmm. You know, with a with a whole with a, a string of hit singles and uh, and two very very successful uh, albums in uh, Ringo and, and uh, Goodnight Vienna, uh, then he had a uh, you know a downturn in his uh, in his fortunes, no doubt about it. Even to the point where in the early eighties. Uh, his old wave album uh, wasn't uh, wasn't even released 
in the in the U.S. and in much of the world. It was, uh, I think, West Germany and Canada uh, were the uh, the only two markets where it was actually actually released. And by uh, by late in the 80s, his uh, his his career appeared to be really in trouble. Plus, he was uh, he was pretty much in trouble personally and it was in uh, late 1988 that uh, that he and uh, and Barbara uh, went into uh, went into rehab and he stopped drinking which had been a major problem for him for you know the better part of uh, you know at least two decades and uh, and uh, stopped smoking by 1990 and uh, and the year before that, in 1989, he uh, came out of rehab and uh, went uh, went back on the road, and uh, for the first time since uh, since the Beatle years, uh, with uh, with this uh, new concept called the All Star Band, and it has been um, you know very very successful. You know, you know. Okay, he's not playing. He's not playing stadiums in the way that that Paul is, mm-hmm. but he's been consistently successful with uh, with the various lineups of the All Star Band over the uh, over the years. So, um, and uh, and that's certainly. Now, obviously, there. You know, his his record sales have not been have not been all that great, but I think just the mere fact that the all-star band has continued to be such a success and um, uh, so uh, such a dependable, uh, not coming up with the phrase. Act? act. Uh, yeah, a, a dependable act uh, shows, again, the, the resiliency of, of that has been the hallmark of Ringo's of Ringo's career and his uh, and his life. So I would say resiliency is the word that I would use. Okay. Okay, Ken. I'm going to have to go with, and again, I wish it had something more to do with actual songs, uh, because there's no doubt about it. Certain songs like a Don't Come Easy and Photograph are classics, but I think he's probably <laughs> going to best be known for the All Star Band tours. Because mm-hmm. like you said, Al, they've been a huge success, and more importantly, for a long time, ever since 1989. So now we're talking, uh, how many years is that? Uh, 28 years. Yeah, where he's been every two, three years, he's on the road, and actually in the last few years, it's been every year. Pretty constant, um, yeah. Yeah, and everywhere he goes, he sells out. And like you said, Al, no, he's not playing stadiums. But he plays anywhere from, you know, 3,000-seat venues to, you know, 10,000-seat venues. And he does Mm -hmm. well, consistently. And, you know, I don't think that the average person studies the history like we do. And they may not know everything that you just went through uh, Mm -hmm. with all the problems that Ringo had with, uh, you know, the alcoholism and all and that he was in rehab. You know, I, I... and also just going through his whole history from 1970 onward. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the average person doesn't know that Ringo had seven top ten hits in America. You know, mm-hmm. I think, uh, but if they've been following the tour circuit in the last almost 30 years, Ringo's been around. And everyone that I've known that has gone to see him that's just a casual fan is blown away at how much they enjoy the show. 
So I think that's something that will stick out in their memory more so than buying a specific Ringo album. Although, you know, as much as there's a lot of Ringo albums that I consider to be his best, most people would point to the Ringo album. I think that Mm -hmm. the all-star band concept and all these wonderful lineups that he's had through the years, each one of them special in their own way, people walk away. So many people who don't even buy Ringo's music go to see him live. And they do so because they enjoy it so much. And up until this recent lineup that he's had for like four years or five years, they've been there's been a different lineup. So that keeps it interesting, too. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the fact nobody would have ever guessed in 1989 that Ringo would be doing this for so long and so consistently. But he has to his credit. Yep. So I yep. think that kind of overshadows even, you know, the, the success that he's had with the record sales of the first five, six years of his solo career. So I would pick mm-hmm. the all-star band, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can absolutely see that because uh, you know the the concept that he that he set up uh, at the very at the very beginning you know the uh, the songs the songs you know and love mm-hmm. you know if you go to see the all star band you know you're going to be hearing a, a goodly portion of songs that you know and love mm-hmm. definitely All right. Alan how about you yeah in in, in a way I agree uh, with Ken. Um, I pretty much agree with Ken, um, although I think I would would have put it differently instead of of saying the all-star band as such. I would think that what will stand out in Ringo's career um, as people look back at it, say, 20, 30 years from now, is the year 1989. Mm. Because we didn't know in 1988 that he went into rehab, but we found out about that in 89 and he did his uh, first new album in a very long time and put the all-star band together and went on on tour. And, uh, and so that's where my answer collides with Ken's, you know, because it's the start of the all-star band. But I think that because it was the start, it was especially important. wasn't necessarily the best of the All Star bands, but it was like it was a new concept. It was Ringo getting out there. It was Ringo playing basically shows of his own, although they were collaborative. And uh, and you know, and time takes time was uh, pretty good too, and you know showed that he was back. I mean, it was a consistently good album, and. Uh, you know, and, and the albums he's done since have been uh, a lot of people seem to overlook them. As Ken says, even people mm-hmm. who go to his shows don't necessarily pick up the records. But, you know, mm-hmm. they've been pretty steadily solid albums mm-hmm. through, you know, through mm-hmm. since, since then. So, um, yeah, so I, I think of 1989 as kind of like a, a, a banner year for Ringo. And I think that when you look back at his career, that's going to stand out as you know, sort of a, in a way, the most important period or, you know, just sort of expanse of time for him. Mm-hmm. That's when he turned and, his life around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. yeah. And also that particular, that first all-star band is a very special one. Yes, absolutely. Uh, because Clarence well, Clemens and uh, yeah, Levon uh, Helm and right. Mm-hmm. Un- un- unfortunately, four four members of that all star band are uh, are gone now. Mm-hmm. But it was uh, it was a very very special collection of mm-hmm. uh, of musicians. 
I was uh, watching La- La- uh, Last Waltz the other day, and I was thinking about uh, Levon Helm and 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 uh, Rick Manuel and, and uh, Rick Danko. Danko and yeah. yeah. So mm. right. Yeah. I think they've all been special. Yes. In their own way. Mm-hmm. What, you, know, you mean all the, all the all-star bands? All the all-star bands have been special. Uh, I I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I would say some more than some definitely more than others. Well, you're going to have your favorites. You're bound to do that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say they're. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say they're all special though. The definitely. The ones that didn't have Mark Farner in them were pretty special. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wasn't wasn't uh, Billy Preston one of the ones with Farner? Because if that's the case, no. Uh, I I wouldn't I wouldn't go that route. But in any event. Yeah. Okay, okay Steve. Um, I'm kind of going on what Alan said about 1989, but I pinpointed it a little more, and, and and I think Ken said the same thing about turning his life around. I think there are entertainers who, a few entertainers who, have turned their um, life around as well as he has, and um, I'm thinking of um, was it Robert. Um, the actor um, who who starred in Chaplin. Um, oh, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey. Oh, Downey. yes, yeah, right. Uh, there are uh, there are a few actors that have, or a few entertainers that have done it as successfully, uh, you know, as they have, and and Downey Jr. did it, and Ringo did it, and actually when you see Ringo nowadays and you see him do the jumping jacks at the end of the shows, you know, you just have to kind of drop your mouth and go, Oh my God, how old is this guy now? But I mean, Mm -hmm. he really, he really has done it. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's talked about it. In fact, I I pulled up a quote said, I got involved with a lot of different medications and you can listen to my records go downhill as the amount of medication went up. I've got photographs Mm -hmm. of me playing all over the world, but I absolutely have no memory of it. I played Washington with the beach boys or so they tell me, Mm. which is amazing because that show is one of the, probably the most memorable shows, you know, that I can recall him doing because it was on television and he doesn't remember that. Yeah, but, but if you look but, at him, if you if you look at the tape of that show and you look at him, oh boy, I haven't seen he's, that one. He's he's gone. I haven't, <laughs> seen, I haven't seen it. And he also, and and I, this is interesting because I do not remember this at all. Uh, and uh, he actually confessed to being a wife beater. Do you guys remember that? He said he he actually beat up Barbara. Um, yeah. but I'm not a violent man, but I was getting violent and it was just painful waking up in the morning and starting drinking again. But in any event, mm-hmm. he has turned his life around. And that's, I think, if anything, that should be what he's remembered for. Uh, granted, the, the all-star band was a, is a great, is a great thing. But it really is kind of a, a really kind of a gimmicky thing. Um, I don't, for the same reason that I don't think you'll remember Flo and Eddie for the Happy Together tour. I don't think Ringo will get remembered for so much for the All Star Band as for getting his getting his act together. Um, because mm-hmm. the, the Happy Together tour is basically the same thing. And, and there's been a whole bunch of bands or a whole bunch of acts that have done those kind of tours you know with with uh the same musicians or with you know i mean basically the all-star band started off as a gimmicky thing to get him out on tour and it, it worked 
better, I think, than he even expected. But I, I think really you have to give him credit for the for turning his life around. I think mm-hmm. that's really really what it comes down to. Well, there's which a plays, few. which plays into the resiliency that I mentioned before. Right. Ken, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are a few things that Steve just said that I don't agree with at all. <laughs> uh, and. Like, uh, uh, you know, I don't look at the All-Star Band as being gimmicky or, or even starting out as gimmicky. Um, I do think this is something that Ringo takes seriously. And kind well, of I, like, think, what, what, I think he does now. I don't think I don't think it started. I mean, it, I don't think it started out that way. Well, he didn't um, know. He certainly didn't know when he started doing this that he was going to keep doing it. But he found mm. out that he enjoyed it. And part of what Ringo's gone through in all these years is to discover who he is. And it's kind of like what George Harrison has said. Our purpose in life is to discover who we are and why we're here. Ringo figured that out. You know, throughout the, f- the first two decades of his solo career, he was doing, uh, he was making records and he was acting. And, you know, maybe he got bogged down in the acting. You know, he didn't really know exactly how to handle his career. And uh, it disappointed him when he didn't have the record sales that he wanted to have. And, um, you know, I just think that he finally discovered, as he has said many times, that he's a musician. And what he enjoys doing most of all is making music with his friends, whether it's in the studio or live. And now mm-hmm. it's become, you know, an important part of his life. And it, he, the fact that he continued to do it all these years is proof of that. So that's part well, of who he is. That's, that's his whole, that's, that's part of his reason for being, as well as having you know, Barbara and having his family. The, the, the whole, and I don't want to get into a long argument about the all-star band, but I mean, it was, it was basically the same kind of thing that David Fishoff had done with other people. And it, and the only reason why, or I shouldn't say the only reason, but Ringo, the, the first all-star band had such great people in it. It worked much better than I think anybody expected. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason that uh, I mean, you you've seen other like I said, other people have used the same concept and it hasn't worked out as well for them as it has for Ringo. It's worked Ringo, out well for Ringo because Ringo has had tremendous lineups through the years of very talented people who each mm-hmm. have a few songs that everybody knows. And so it's kind of like Ringo said, it's the songs, you know, and love. And it's all right. how they all blend well together. All of the lineups have been really stellar lineups, certainly in my opinion. There's nothing no, wrong with I, having I, your favorites. Well, I disagree with that. I've enjoyed I, every I, single one of these all-star bands. I don't think I don't think every single one. I think there are some that are very much better than others. Well, you're always starting, going to say that. Everybody has starting, favorites. Starting, hmm. with the, starting with the 89. No, I think there's a de- definite... I think anybody's going to argue. There are, there's been criticism of the current band. There's I been think a, if there's, there's been, criticism, it's mainly because he's kept the same band for so long. And people want to see a change. Mm, I I, yeah, I that, just, that I disagree there a little bit because I think there I think there are other I mean well all right but um yeah okay I mean uh, I mean uh, Al Alan what do you what do you guys think um <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I, I to be honest with you, I've only seen I have not unlike Ken, I haven't seen all of the All-Star Band uh, tours. I've mm-hmm. been more 
more selective, let's put it that way, for various and sundry reasons. I haven't seen um, them all either. I've seen most. I've know. seen a good number of them. I don't know how many off but, the top of my but, head. But I could. But I certainly understand Ken's point that uh, that you know that there's that there's something to like about all of the different all-star bands including including this one and uh and it is it is true that the the people that seem to be complaining the most now are people that are saying that well he's just playing with the same people over and over again you know hey paul mccartney has been playing with the same people over and over again for 16 years Mm -hmm. so and uh you know other than a couple of people uh, nobody seems to be really complaining about that I, I, I think I think the the issue with the, with the all stars is not is more the material really because the that first band for example had I mean when you have people playing the night they drove old Dixie down and, and right and, but there are you know but each each band has had you know there have been people like Dave Edmonds and Ian Hunter mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Peter Frampton and Sheila. You know, Sheila E, et cetera, et cetera. So each band has had something going for it. So you can't just, I mean, the, the, the 89 band absolutely was very special, but, uh, but you can't just say that, you know, just because that band was special that all the others weren't. No, I'm so, not, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. I'm so, saying there are, uh, you know, uh, I would not say, however, that every, uh, that all all-star bands are created equal. Definitely I not. I didn't say that. I just said they're no, all I, great. Right. Uh, I, I still think you're being a little too. Uh, I, I wouldn't say all great. I would say good. I wouldn't say all great. Well, we have a difference of opinion, and I've been to right. every single tour. And I think right. part of the reason why you feel the way you do, Steve, is because you have a preference for certain eras of music. You're probably not going to be all that crazy about the 80s artists that, that Ringo which, has. Which, in his ones, band. You, which probably, ones are you talking about? Probably, um, say, Steve Lukather. Someone like that, or Howard Jones. I did. I have to say, I did not see the Howard Jones oh, band. That, that was I my loved, favorite tour. I loved the uh, Gary Brooker, Ian Hunter tour. I absolutely adored that. I loved all the tours that Sheila E was on. Mm-hmm. She was she was spectac- spectacular. Right. Um, well, I did actually, not Sheila E. Carm- Sheila E was in the tour with Howard Jones. I, well, I didn't see the one. The one with I didn't see. I, at least I don't recall if I saw the Howard Jones one. I know I saw at least one with her. So well, she I, was she was in three tours, three different right. lineups. I can't remember how many I saw with her. I think I saw two. Well, two you, out of the what three. I'm saying is you tend to lean towards the '60s and '70s artists. Those are your favorites. Mm, well, yeah. Whatever. Well, I mean, well, I, I've, I've seen an. Uh, I, I mean, it's just. Some of them, I think, are better are better than others. I think that's just the way it, it has been. Okay, and, and um, what's what's better for you may not be better for me. We have a difference of opinion. That's yeah, all. right. But I, well, I wouldn't necessarily judge, you know, what my feelings are based on what you think my feelings are. Okay. <laughs> uh huh. I think I know what your feelings are after working with you for four years. I. I... <laughs> we, well, we've gone we've gone pretty far off the track here yeah. and why don't yeah. we get back on the track mm-hmm. and um, why don't we turn to Paul McCartney <laughs> thank you and um, I'm going to be fairly quick because uh, we're running long as usual my my one word that I think Paul is going to be most remembered for is very simply songcraft 
you know, ob- obviously you're talking about somebody who was who by the time the Beatles ended was already one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And then you add, you know, all of the endless number of great songs that he's uh, that he's put out in the years uh, since then. In fact, you know, some years ago in, in Beatle fan, I said that uh, that I considered Paul McCartney to be the greatest uh, writer of pop songs in the second half of the 20th century and in uh, the first, uh, you know, uh, with the glaring exception of driving rain in the first uh, Could I edit that out? Could I edit that out? No. <laughs> in the first uh, decade and a half of uh, of this new century, I think he's done some uh, some some great work. But what's what's most special about Paul McCartney as a songwriter is that he has this ability and not every not every songwriter can do this. He has the ability to come up with these these earworms, these hooks that worm their way into your subconscious and three days later you'll hear you know you'll hear a song and all of a sudden three days later you'll realize that you've been you know half humming half singing hope of deliverance you know or mm-hmm. uh uh no, or wonderful christmas time or mm-hmm. <laughs> you know or, i sing or, that or, one or, all the time Right, of course, right. Mm-hmm. You know, or silly love songs, or uh, you know, or only love remains, or mm-hmm. you know, any number of uh, uh, any number of other songs uh, that you've been singing to that to you, uh, them to yourself for three days. You know, he's uh, that's you know that's a uh, that's a that's a real gift, mm-hmm. and he's uh, he's just a uh, he's a consummate songwriter. You know, there's no no question about it. Even if sometimes his lyrics are not the not the greatest, he he has the ability to come up with uh, with melodies that are just outstanding. Is is a you know is a is a total understatement. But that's that's the way. Uh, that's uh, I think a, a pretty good description. So I would say songcraft would be what what Paul McCartney is probably best uh, best known for. Hmm. Ken? Well, I would agree with everything you just said, although I would say that encompasses his entire career, not just his solo career. Oh, oh, absolutely, but that we're talking about his solo career. As I said, you know, by the time the Beatles ended, he was already one of the greatest songwriters of hmm. the 20th century. Uh, but uh, but we're talking strictly about the the solo career. Okay. Well, for me, Paul was definitely the most difficult to come up with because he's put out so much music, well over 30 albums. He's done so many different things. And, you know, like I said, I'm thinking more in terms of the mainstream public. I'm thinking more of people who don't know history that well and certainly don't know most of his catalog and maybe only know a handful of hits or a Mm -hmm. few things like Band on the Run. But um, whereas there's so many great songs that he's given us through the years and great albums... I still think, kind of like Ringo, that he's going to be known for his tours because he puts together the greatest shows, two and a half to three hours long. And he's got this incredible wealth of material to draw from. And whereas I wish that he didn't rely so much on the Beatles, he does have so much music to pull from. And he's still doing great concerts 
And despite the fact that, as we've said, his voice isn't exactly what it used to be, he still mm-hmm. puts on a great show. He gives you, you know, it's an amazing show from start to finish. Even though there may not be that many changes from tour to tour, I still love every single show I've ever seen from him. So I think the fact that he's toured the world so much, so many people have seen him live. Most people that have seen him are thoroughly impressed. If they don't think he's one of the best perform, they either think it's one of it's either the best show or one of the best shows they've ever seen. And in my opinion, I don't. I, the fact that he jumps around from piano to bass to acoustic guitar to electric guitar makes it even more interesting. When you take a look at all the different tours that he's done, from the Wings tours all the way on up, you know he's one of the greatest live performers we've ever had. And um, you know I'd love to just single out a song because you know I could just as easily say "Band on the Run" if I want to. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, like I said, I'm thinking in terms of the average Joe out there who doesn't know this full scope of music that he's done, don't know how rich in variety it is don't know all the great b-sides that he's put out you know all that stuff they go to see his shows they're blown away even if they don't know you know his newest album even if they haven't Mm -hmm. even if they haven't bought most of his solo music i think the shows that paul has put on uh, are just really amazing you know and the fact that he's been doing it consistently every single year now for several years and probably will keep doing it probably less and less with each year but that alone is just so amazing to me. Now, let me just play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh-huh. Uh, you're talking about somebody who just within the last year filled up four CDs of what at least he and his, uh, his team consider a good portion of his best material, uh-huh. his, his best recorded material. And yet, you th- and yet you think that it's the live performances that are of what uh, what he's best known for. I think that because of his stature, because of all that he's done, Beatles and solo, people know that he's a great performer and a great entertainer, and he puts on a great show. And mm-hmm. I don't really look at Pure McCartney as being something that was devised as a best of Paul McCartney. I think this was a set list that Paul put together that were personal favorites of his. And yes, there were hits on there. But they're not necessarily, they're not what I would, I would put together as a greatest hits or best of compilation, although a lot of those songs I would put in there. But, right. but I think that to the average person, again, I'm talking average person out there that doesn't mm-hmm. know most of his music, that may not know all the album cuts on Pure McCartney, <laughs> they are going to know most of the songs from his solo career that he does live. They will know 1985, you know, mm-hmm. because it does get some airplay on rock radio not a lot they'll know let me roll it because that still gets airplay on classic rock radio not as much as bad on the run or jet but even the deeper cuts what what he considers deeper cuts are fairly well known to an average audience so i think that if you're going out to have a good time if you want to see someone who's putting on a great show that encompasses his whole career even though like i said a little too weighted for me in the beatles Paul McCartney is one of the absolute greatest performers and entertainers we have ever had in music, period. And he gives you your money's worth every time. So I think that's what most people will remember him for, because he's also toured the world in a lot of Mm -hmm. different locations. It's not just the U.S. and Japan. He's played in South America. 
parts of Europe. He hasn't played Australia for a long time, I know. I was just gonna I was just gonna say that. <laughs> you know, but he has he has tackled, you know, most of the world. <laughs> Even Russia, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what I think. I would prefer if it was more the solo catalog of his of his work, but he's so damn good as a performer. He really he you know he knows how to turn it on. He knows how to win an audience. And he does it consistently, and he still is doing it. He will sell out every show that that he that he does for the rest of his life, and there's a reason for that. It's a combination of who he is and how great a show he does. Okay, uh, Alan. Okay, I think I'm going to uh, take the Al approach this time and come up with one word uh, that I think people will think of him in terms of, and that word is facility. And facility is a double-edged sword. Uh, the upside of it is exactly what Al said about the ability to, at the drop of a hat, come up with an earworm. You know, come mm-hmm. up with a hook that that is going to stay in your mind, and that is a gift. And the downside of it is that because it's so easy for him, um, I think he signs off on a lot of stuff that maybe would be better if he worked a bit harder at it. You know, you get the, and he talks a lot of the time about how, yeah, yeah. You know, when we went in with the Beatles, we thought, you know, if we, if we can't get it done in two hours, you know, writing a song, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not worth it. Well, you know, that's not a rule. (laughs) What is that? You know, and if you have, you know, some of these songs where the lyrics are are just not quite up there, you know, I mean, they're okay, but they're not, you know, they could be better. You kind of think if he made it three hours, maybe it would have been. And also because of this facility, there's this, you know, this this discussion that, that actually he and I had when I interviewed him in 1990, where I said, you know, why is it that sometimes stuff on your b-sides that you know people just don't get necessarily if they buy the album and you know not necessarily the single uh sometimes the stuff on the b-sides is better than things on the album and what i was thinking of for instance was uh flying to my home as Mm -hmm. opposed to uela soleil you know (laughs) um you know, like, why wasn't Flying to My Home on that album? You know, that was a, it's a great song. And Uela Soleil, I mean, I don't know, you know. That's you. That's how you feel. That. That's how you feel. That's how I feel. And, of course, my opinion is really the only one that matters. But um, That's right. <laughs> this is how music critics are trained to think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, you know, and, and, and what he said was, you know, here's the thing. I write them all, and... I like them all, so I can't really judge which ones are the best, and so I play them for my kids and my kids' friends, and I sort of go what, what they, uh, you know, are, are telling me. And I, I, I'm not sure if he was being totally accurate about that, but if he was, I, I, I found that kind of a shocking answer because part of being an artist is the ability to edit and the ability to sift the wheat from the chaff. And, and I think that because things come so easily to him and that a lot of his quote, bad stuff is still an awful lot better than a lot of people's good stuff. Mm, that's <laughs> uh, true. You know, 
he he accepts it and and uh, and and has trouble sort of saying okay, but this is really the top drawer stuff. This is what should go on the album. So again, it's it's facility and it has it has a an upside and a downside, but it's definitely I think a word that people asso- will associate with Paul when they see you know how incredibly prolific he is and and. And how much of it is actually pretty good stuff, you know? I think what Paul was telling you was truthful, though. I think he does rely on his family and his friends. And I remember when when your favorite album, Al, Driving Rain, came out, and Paul picked the single from a lover to a friend, he said Uh that was a favorite of Ringo's. So Ringo had told him that he liked the song, so maybe that was the reason why he made it a single. So he relies Mm -hmm. on the judgment of the people around him sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And certainly, true. certainly, his family's not going to lie to him, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, or, or his closest friends are not going to. It doesn't mean that what they're saying is correct, but you know, right. it's all opinion as to what we think are his best work. Flowers in the Dirt and Off the Ground could have easily have been double albums. Mm-hmm. Once you see, once you hear all the bonus material, so there you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, very true, Steve. Um, again, Alan and I are thinking pretty much along the same wavelength. Um, but I went out a little, a little further. I think the one thing about McCartney that will be remembered is his, his going out, uh, his experimenting with all forms of artistic, uh, artistic expression. I mean, he's been a poet, he's been a painter, he's been a classical composer, he's done avant-garde as well as. Uh, the as well as rock and roll and and uh, the you know his music hooks uh, are are you know without question they were they're great but i mean his just all around uh going out and and doing everything and some of it i mean he hasn't been successful in every instance mm-hmm. um you know the pain i don't think the painting worked i don't think the poetry worked um but um, I, I do think that he, there was a whole lot of, there's, I mean, the fact that he's been out there and he's been so versatile, I think that's probably pretty amazing. One thing I was going to bring up, I happened to be scouting around on Hulu the other day, and Hulu has, and I didn't even know it existed, there was a documentary called The Art of McCartney about the making of that album, oh, which, yeah. I, mm-hmm. which I did not like. I, I mean, I, we t- when we had did the show, I, I dumped on the album because I really didn't think it was that great. But hearing mm-hmm. the artists talk about McCartney and hearing the little excerpts from the songs rather than the full, the full song actually worked better for me than hearing the album. And uh, mm-hmm. so I want to recommend to anybody that has Hulu to check that out. Uh, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. It, it, but it, mm-hmm. it, it, and that kind of goes along with you know uh, his his uh, talent, the way it's been so um, you know it's been so amazing and it's been so wide open. I mean the way he's gone and done so many things. Uh, again, not all of it has worked, but I think that really is what people will remember I, I i do agree about the about his talent for musical hooks there's no absolutely no question i almost kind of wish i had thought of that and i and i didn't but the first thing that came to mind was you know his um, going out and trying all these things and and being so expressive in so many areas and not being afraid to dip his toes in 
in uh, in things. I, I'm frankly, when he first started doing classical, and when Liverpool Oratorio came out, I kind of cringed. Um, and I over the over time, I've gotten I've felt better about his classical stuff. But um, but the fact that he tried that, uh, and he has tried so many different things, ballet. I mean. You know, I mean, that's really kind of, you know, that you got to give him credit, even if he hasn't, if it hasn't worked, he hasn't been afraid to get out there and try it. So, well, like I said, we all have different opinions and like you just were talking about his classical music that you like it a little bit better now than you first did. Also, he did ambient music with uh, with the fireman. You know, and all the different styles that he's done. But again, you're relying on people to know all this information. And the, the mm. average person, I think, doesn't know all that. They know he was a Beatle. They know he had some hits on his own. A lot of hits, really. But the average person doesn't know. No, I think, you know? I think people that are listening to us know pretty well, much that's, pretty much that's stuff. our listeners. I'm talking about the average person out there. Well, I think if you... If, as a as a journalist, if I'm writing his obituary, or when I'm writing his obituary, that's going to get mentioned that he dipped his toes in all sorts of different areas. And I think that's that was one of the considerations that I was thinking of as far as the show goes. You know, what 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 will I, you know, if if and when the time comes, what will I have to consider as far as you know remembering them? And that would be the thing that. Uh, one of the things that I would that I would point out. Mm-hmm. So, it's well, a, it's ex- really an important thing, though. That's what stands out for me when you're talking about Paul. But then I'm not the average person, so. Right. Well, we know that. Right? <laughs> and plus, and plus, you know, if when you are going to do the you know the obit, there is actually one thing that he'll obviously be known for more than anything else, and that's obviously having been a Beatle. Well, obviously, obviously, uh-huh. but we were, but we weren't talking about right about yes, right, right. So. exactly, right. Mm-hmm. And 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 what other one other thing that just comes out off the top of my head is the fact that his kids have turned out to be so relatively successful. You got Stella, who really, you know, has has made a mark for herself. You got Mary, who's a great photographer, and you got James, who is not what I would call a big success as a musician yet, but he's, you know, he's been plugging hard away at it. So, you know, right. I but think, that has, that has nothing to do with, with his, you know, with his, his legacy. Art. No, yeah. no, absolutely. His legacy, no, you know, yeah. no, but I think, I, I do think that the, the fact that he's been so, you know, that he has been so well-rounded and so uh, uh, willing to try things. I think, um, I think you have to give him credit for that. Mm-hmm. He always was that way. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, absolutely. So that's, yeah, that's as I kind of expected. That's four actually pretty uh, diverse, uh, pretty pretty disparate uh, views right. of right. Uh, of uh, what uh, what Paul McCartney is going to be most remembered for. Well, we are of course, as usual, way over time. So we're going to quickly. Just give you our contact information and uh, uh, and uh, then put this one to rest. <laughs> and uh, Steve, how do people get in touch with us? People can get in touch with us by writing things we said today, uh, radio show at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, things we said today, Beatles fans. Uh, we have a Twitter account, things we said fab. 
Um, and you can get a hold of me by writing BeatlesExaminer at gmail.com. I have a Facebook page and a Beatles news and commentary news group. And there I said it very quickly. Okay. <laughs> and <laughs> Ken? Uh, my email address is everylittlething at att.net. My website is kenmichaelsradio.com. I would like to mention one quick thing that I will have a special contest coming up probably by this Friday. And I'll be giving away a few of the newly remastered uh, vinyl albums from uh, the George Harrison uh, vinyl box set. A few of them, not the whole box Mm -hmm. set, a few of the titles. So uh, check out the website for that, KenMichaelsRadio.com. Okay. And Alan, how do uh, people get in touch with you? Um, either through the group email or um, on my Facebook page, which is Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remix. There's another one. That's probably the best way. Okay. And uh, similar with me, uh, uh, Facebook, uh, Al Sussman, Twitter at ASUSS49, uh, or through Beetle Fan Magazine, www.beetlefan.com. The new issue was in my mailbox this afternoon. Uh, and, uh, and also, uh, in about 48 hours, I'm going to be on my way to my old, uh, my old homestead in, uh, in New York and New Jersey, and we'll be uh, in Jersey City uh, for the, uh, the Fest for Beatles fans this, mm-hmm. uh, this weekend, as will Ken. Uh, Ken will be there on Saturday, right. and he'll be uh, he'll be participating in a uh, Beatles radio forum uh, early in the afternoon and uh, early in the evening. Uh, he'll be doing a uh, uh, having a discussion with Kid O'Toole about uh, buried treasures from the solo years, mm-hmm. and uh, and then a little bit later he'll be he and uh, our friend Darren DeVivo uh, will be uh, interviewing uh, uh, Gary. Uh, Gary Van Syak and Adam Ippolito from uh, from Elephant's Memory. So Ken will be there on Saturday. I'll be there the whole weekend. Uh, like I said, they they roll me out with the uh, with the furniture, and that's um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at the uh, the Hyatt Regency, Jersey City, on the Hudson. Uh, <laughs> And hope we'll. And if you uh, if you're going to be there, please, if you see me in the hall, trip me uh, or stop by, uh, uh, especially the Act Naturally stage where I'll be much of the uh, much of the weekend. And uh, as I said, uh, this was a <laughs> as usual a full a a, a fully packed uh, edition of things we said today. And we thank you for listening. And uh, for Ken Michaels and Alan Cozen and Steve Marinucci, this is Al Sussman. Again, thanks for listening to things we said today, and we will see you next time. (laughs) 